So I think the, uh, the Bible can be a, a pretty intimidating book or books more properly stated since the word Bible comes from the Latin for the, the books, plural. Um, you may know that there are 66 books in our Protestant Bibles. There are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. Uh, you may know they were, they were written over the course of uh, 1,500 years or so by we're not for sure uh, how many authors and editors. And in those 66 books, there's a wide variety of types of literature, which can make it uh, a little intimidating as well. There are also thousands upon thousands upon thousands of characters, uh, some significant, most much less so. Some are historical, some are more mythological. There are heroes and villains, the faithful and the faithless, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the powerless, patriarchs and matriarchs, kings and queens, warlords and bandits, oppressors and the oppressed. The vast, vast majority of whom uh, most of us do not remember and few of us could actually name. So that um, when we open the Bible and try to make sense of it, the content of this most important collection of books can be intimidating and overwhelming and at times plenty confusing. Now, having said all that, there are um, lots of biblical characters who are memorable and worth knowing. If we did a pop quiz right now and we had everyone in the sanctuary um, write down five names of essential biblical characters or maybe 10 names of essential biblical characters, there probably would be um, plenty of commonality among our lists. Uh, one guy would be probably at the top of our lists, right? Name starts with J, ends with Jesus. He would be on our list. <laughs> um, Moses would probably be on most of our lists, maybe Abraham. And then there are these uh, key themes and, and aspects of our theology that are consistent through the ages, consistent across the stories uh, of all those characters. Um, theological truths that show up again and again and again, no matter the time period, no matter the setting, no matter the type of literature, no matter the story. So that um, even if we're intimidated by the most important collection of books ever written, that's what we believe, uh, we can still listen for the, the major themes and the consistent theology. We can focus on the most prominent, uh, most important characters through whom our theology is revealed. In our back to school sermon series each year, what we do is, is focus on um, these most important characters. We're highlighting them over this course of the years in this series, not necessarily because, the characters, because of the characters themselves per se, um, with the exception of Jesus, obviously. I mean, he's everything. He's him, as the kids are saying these days. Yeah. So the early service, both of my boys were in the choir loft, and when I, whenever I say, as the kids are saying, they charge me five bucks. But I can promise you, the kids are saying, he's him, that's one of the things they're saying, that's, that's Jesus for sure. Um, but it's not about the characters necessarily, it's about what the, the stories of these characters tell us about God, about our relationship with God, about our relationships with each other. So last week we read the story of Deborah from the fourth chapter of the book of Judges. This week we're reading her story again, but this time we're reading from the fifth chapter. And this fifth chapter is actually the older account 
of her story written in the form of an ancient poem. My Old Testament professor said that going from chapter four to chapter five in Judges is like going from Steinbeck to Beowulf. And if you're a literature person, you know what he meant. So uh, let's turn to chapter five. I'm gonna read the first five verses now and we'll come back and read some more later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it is proclaimed by God's servant, the author of Judges. Then Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying, when locks are long in Israel, when the people offer themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured, the clouds indeed poured water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai, before the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the word of God for the people of God. Okay, so um, do y'all remember the beer Bud Dry? Do you remember that beer? It's, um, it's a light lager from Anheuser-Busch, came out in April of 1990, I'm probably dating myself a little bit. Um, it was never very popular, so I'm told. The ad slogan, though, for Bud Dry was, was memorable. It stuck with me all these years. It was, why ask why? Try Bud Dry. You all remember that? I mean, this was a very brief history. Okay, fine. Well, as part of that ad campaign, they had a commercial, and this commercial um, spoofed foreign films. It was a, a black and white commercial, uh, it was shot on a beach in a foreign language, I think it was Italian, and there were subtitles, and there was this very sad music, and there was a woman who was crying, and there was a, like a random clown for some reason. It was a parody. It was a parody that was intentionally uh, confusing and strange, had nothing to do with beer, as far as I could tell. And then the narrator says, why are foreign films so foreign? I know, why ask why? It still makes me laugh after all these years. That ad came to mind this week as I was reading from the fifth chapter of Judges and preparing for today. Um, and I, listen, I know this is gonna make me sound unsophisticated perhaps, but this is true. I am not a big poetry guy. Um, I prefer authors to tell me what they're thinking rather than force me to interpret what they're thinking. I like prose, I like stories. I've been married to an engineer for 25 years. She's a very linear thinker. Well, that's the way we work in our house. So when I read poetry, um, it's not exactly like why are foreign films so foreign, but it's close. Why is poetry so poetic? <laughs> By which I mean so hard to understand. And when it comes to the fifth chapter of Judges, uh, this is not just my admittedly a bit provincial opinion. So here's what my very trusted HarperCollins Bible commentary has to say about Judges 5. It's vivid descriptions, striking imagery, effective repetitions, and skillful use of various poetic techniques have rightly earned it the designation as a literary masterpiece. Okay, that sounds like something we should read, right? But then the next sentence says, unfortunately, the text and its meaning are often obscure. A literary masterpiece 
whose text and meaning are often obscure. You know, poetry. (laughs) Now, some of y'all may love poems and may know exactly where we're getting at with this uh, particular chapter, but it's gonna take a little bit of unpacking. It is a literary masterpiece, and it's actually very, very ancient. It was written probably in the late 12th century BC, long time ago, um, very soon after the event that it describes. And the the general genre is poetry, but it's a a specific kind of poetry. It's a victory hymn specifically, and that was a a common literary device in the ancient Near East during this era. In fact, uh, this time last year when we were in our back to school sermon series focused on Moses and Miriam, Reagan preached on the song of Miriam, uh, which is also this kind of poetry and actually has some pretty similar themes. The Song of Deborah is a poem by and about one of the most effective leaders of this era of Israel's history. Uh, The book of Judges tells us the story of the the two-century period between the possession of the promised land and the establishment of the monarchy. It was a very difficult time in Israel's history. And in it, Judges that is, we read alternating stories of leaders who were effective and leaders who were not. Last week, um, we read the narrative version, the prose version, the easy to understand version of Deborah's revolt against the Canaanites, how God, through Deborah, uh, had chosen a general named Barak uh, to lead two tribes of Israel from, from Galilee in the north, and how they rose up against a Canaanite king named Jabin, who had a, a 900 chariot strong army. Um, under the leadership of a man named Sisera. You're gonna hear all that in the poem, that's why I'm telling you that. And that, that narrative version that we read last week is a later explanation of this earlier poetic account. And that poem, as we read, begins with, then Deborah and Barak sang on that day. But the verb there is the feminine singular in Hebrew so that while Barak was certainly an important player in this story, the song was composed Uh, by Deborah. Now, if we were to keep reading for um, the next 11 verses or so, or next six or seven verses or so, all of us would have question marks above our heads. It's a very confusing section. I'm gonna skip that section. Um, We're gonna jump down to verse 12. And as we're gonna see, compared to the narrative version that we read last week, there are some interesting details that are different, and there's some more information that this older version gives us. So this is Judges 5, verses 12 to 23. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, utter a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Obinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for him against the mighty. From Ephraim, they set out into the valley, that's a tribe, following you, Benjamin, another tribe with your kin. From Maker, another tribe, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, another tribe, those who bear the marshal's staff. The chiefs of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar, another tribe, faithful to Barak. Into the valley, they rushed out at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, though, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you tarry among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he abide with the ships? 
Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, settling down by his landings. Zebulun is a people that scorned death, Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Taanach, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. The stars fought from heaven from their courses. They fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kaishan, swept them away. The ongoing, onrushing torrent, the torrent, Kaishan, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse, Miraz says the angel of the Lord, curse bitterly its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. It's a lot, a literary masterpiece whose meaning is sometimes obscure. <laughs> and so of all the characters in Israel's history, thousands and thousands of thousands in the Old Testament alone, why are we focused on Deborah? Well, the short answer is that she is uh, the most powerful woman in our faith history in the Old Testament, uh, at least in terms of overt authority and leadership. Now, there are lots of influential women in the Old Testament, to be sure, Sarah, Miriam, Esther, various queens throughout the era of the monarchy. We could go on and on, but Deborah holds a unique place. During these two centuries of struggle by the Israelites living as 12 loosely connected tribes with no central leadership, battling a host of enemies, including the Canaanites who had been in the land when the people arrived, as well as foreign groups like the Philistines uh, who wanted control of this very um, agriculturally rich and strategic part of the world. In this context for struggle, God's people saw Deborah as a trusted leader. That's her on the throne. We talked last week about her faithfulness, her wisdom, her boldness. Uh, she had been a prophetess, we're told, to whom the people had come for important decisions and guidance. That's what this um, is depicting. And so when the northern tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun decided that the time was right to revolt against a Canaanite king who had oppressed them for an entire generation, they knew who to ask to lead them. Now, the song of, of Deborah gives us, I mean, it's tougher to read because of the literary style, but it gives us a fuller, uh, different, slightly uh, different in details account of the battle than the narrative version that we read about in chapter four. And the first detail that stands out, if you're paying attention, um, is which of the 12 tribes participated. We don't know why the fifth chapter gives us different details than the fourth chapter. We, we don't know why that is but there are definitely some different details. Fourth chapter says there's just two tribes. Um, this chapter says there are six. That's who Ephraim, Benjamin, Issachar, and Maker are. They at, are added to Zebulun and Naphtali. And then, uh, whereas the prose account ignores the tribes who didn't help in the battle, the Song of Deborah actually calls out four of them, four of those tribes. That's who Reuben and Gilead and Dan and Asher are. And interestingly, in neither of the versions is the tribe of Judah mentioned, which is not a minor oversight. We don't know why that is either. But beyond all those internal politics, there are also some details of the battle itself that are uh, either different or new. All of the other battles in the book of Judges are defensive battles. So the Canaanites attack the Israelites and the Israelites defend themselves. But here, what we read about is an offensive battle. 
that would result in control over central and northern Palestine. This is not a minor thing. And what's more, the Song of Deborah says there were lots of kings of Canaan that fought the Israelites in this battle, not just the single King Jabin, who was the villain we read about last week. None of those details are really the point of the story, though. For historical purposes, they're interesting. The fact that they're different in the two chapters is interesting. But the point of this story, like every other story in the Bible, is about the theology. And the point of this story is that God shows up for God's people. And specifically, in the context of this story, God shows up in a very similar way to how God showed up against Pharaoh in the Exodus. We're told that the, uh, that the Kaishan, this wadi, this kind of marshy area, uh, is flooded as the stars in their courses rain down on Sisera and his chariots, so that just as Pharaoh's army and his chariots got stuck in the mud of the Red Sea, so the chariots here are stuck in the mud of Kaishan. And what the narrative tells us, as we read last week, is that the Lord, not all these six tribes with their, with their soldiers, not Deborah, not Barak, the Lord through Sisera and all his chariots and his army into a panic, and all the army of Sisera fell by the sword, not one was left. And the very end of this, of this two-chapter two um, story of Deborah ends with a single verse. So perish all your enemies, O Lord, but may your friends be like the sun as it rises in its might. And the land had rest for 40 years. If we, uh, if we kept reading there, the very next verse says, and the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> and we go back into this cycle again like we have in Judges, but for now we'll stay here with this victory. And I'm gonna ask again, like I asked last week, so what? <laughs> I mean, as biblically literate Christians, people trying to be as biblically literate as possible, it's good to know about the major players in scripture, and I, I think we've covered well enough why, why Deborah matters, but in this story, what's the major What's the major theme, the theology that is uh, so consistent throughout our salvation history? What is this particular event told in two different ways from more than 3,000 years ago have to teach us? Uh, this summer, I finally read a book that's been on my must-read list for a while. Uh, John Steinbeck was one of the, the greatest authors of the 20th century. He's someone who's firmly in the pantheon of American literature. He wrote uh, 25 books throughout his prolific career. 16 of those were novels. He was awarded the, the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1962. Chances are most of us have read something by Steinbeck along the way or seen some film adaptation of what he wrote. For me, uh, it was Of Mice and Men. We had to read that in high school. I loved it, found it totally compelling, but then I didn't read anything else by Steinbeck for a long time. Uh, the Grapes of Wrath won him the Pulitzer Prize in 1940. You may have read that or seen the movie. Uh, Cannery Row and Tortilla Flat are classics. But Steinbeck himself considered East of Eden to be his magnum opus. And a, a buddy of mine recommended this book to me as his favorite novel uh, many years ago now. It's been on my must-read list ever since. It's, uh, it's a task to read it. It's pretty long, pretty, pretty deep. But I finally got through it this summer. And it is, uh, it's brilliant. 
I'd recommend it, but uh, most uh, scholars and critics refer to it as brutal, and I think uh, that's the way I experienced this book in a couple places, so just be warned if you're planning to read it. And it's brutal in some places because it's about this fundamental struggle between good and evil within each of us, and about the, both the blessing and the curse of the free will that, that God has given us. And Steinbeck was very clear that it was, it was directly inspired by the opening chapters of Genesis, and specifically the, the first four essential characters in our uh, salvation history, uh, Adam and Eve and their sons, Cain and Abel. I'd recommend it if you've got the time. But at one point in East of Eden, two main characters are having this really deep theological discussion. And you can tell that there's a lot of meaning in here, and uh, Steinbeck is exploring theology in this section of the book. And one of them says to the other, no story has power, uh, nor will it last, unless we feel in ourselves that it is true and true of us. No story, no matter, uh, no matter what it is, no story has power, nor will it last unless we feel in ourselves that it is true and it is true of us. And there's something of that in the story of Deborah. The story of Deborah contains this eternal truth that shows up again and again in the history of our faith. Uh, it's a truth that God revealed first thousands of years ago, and it, it shows up in the stories of most of the important characters in our faith history, in the story of Adam and Eve, in the story of Cain and Abel, in the story of Abraham and Sarah, and Moses and Miriam, and Joshua and Deborah. And the reason this eternal truth has power in story is because it's part of our story too. God is on the side of the faithful. That's what we know. We've always known it. We know it today. That's true when times are good, to be sure. But I think sometimes it's especially true in times of struggle. So that whatever it is that's going on in your life right now, God is with you. That's the truth of our faith, always and without condition. It's a complicated collection of books, this Bible of ours. But the 66 books of our faith that was written over the course of 1,500 years or so with thousands upon thousands of characters tells us again and again that this is true. God is with you. Thanks be to God. Amen.